0: 日本史学習に最高に持ってこいのサイト、サムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ。美しい自然にあふれている縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで、全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょう。では早速日本史の世界へ。Welcome
1: yes! back to the Samurai Archives podcast and part two of our discussion on the politics of the Edo period. Sort of as an aside in the political sphere, part of your focus is uh, Edo period art, and right. so as far as artists are concerned, where did they kind of fit in in the politics? Because Edo period is considered to be a culturally and artistically vibrant point in Japanese history, and on top of that, uh, you know you have patrons of the arts, you have a lot of artistic things going on. Now there's peace, so the artists are pretty active. Uh, what what sort right. of standing did they have? What were they? Where? How how were artisans held in in Japan during the Edo period were they considered? They must have been considered above simple traders and simple merchants. But where did they stand in in the uh, and socially and maybe even politically?
0: Right, right. Well, uh, another one of these sort of standard tropes that we hear about when we when we do sort of intro history of Japan kind of things, you know, in, in undergrad or something like this, is this idea of of there being four. More classes for uh, uh, levels of status.
1: Don't they lump artisans into the merchant category for that purpose? They don't. They,
0: well, they, they don't. don't. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think before are supposed to be samurai at the top, peasants, that is to say farmers, farmers underneath them, artisans underneath them, and merchants at the bottom.
1: Oh, okay, because
0: okay. Because the samurai are obviously the coolest because they're samurai. Um, the peasants, the farmers, feed everyone and they're therefore really important. Uh, under them is the artisans who are cool because they make things and then the, and the merchants who are uncool because they don't make things. They just push things around and make money off of it. Right. Um, so that's sort of the standard story. The extent to which that actually was a thing, I, I think, I, I mean, I haven't read that much about it. I don't really know the ins and outs of it, but I, I get the impression that the extent to which that was a thing, um, is kind of debated in scholarship. Um, Obviously, people were not, you know. I mean, number one, there were samurai, there were poorer, poorer samurai who did farm, you know, so there was that. But, and, and there were actually later on, we, we see merchants and artisans being able to buy their way into this into samurai status. So there definitely were different statuses in the sense that you could or could not, you know, sw- switch between them. But I, I'm not sure if this was ever really uh, like. Per- prescribed by the shogunate, like you have to be one of these four classes and this is the four that exist. Anyway, it's in some ways it's a helpful kind of rubric for understanding kind of the types of people that were out there. Um, so we have basically those four types of people. And then below below the, the statuses we have various kinds of um, untouchables or eta, outcasts, heinin, which literally means not people, uh, heenin. So, you have all those people who um, handled flesh, leather, people who did particularly dirty or dangerous work, um, were sort of outside of the... they were even below the merchants. And I'm getting back around to the art question, which is to say that then you had people, you had people in the theater and the pleasure quarters. Um, all of those people, geisha, courtesans, kabuki actors, um, and various people that sort of worked within those realms, were all also sort of outside of this status system. Whether that means they were below in the sense of being, you know, outcast or something, I I don't think so, but they were just sort of outside of the classification system. And I think that that includes a lot of um, artists as well, depending on which types of artists we're talking about. But anyway, the shogunate definitely did have its own um, artisans and artists that it hired. So obviously people, you know, there were those people who had some higher status because they worked for the shogunate. There were people like, the particularly the, the Kano school of, uh, of painters who were um, official shogunate painters. Whenever the shogunate needed, you know, pretty things to decorate their buildings, they hired the Kano, When they needed somebody to paint in a, some kind of visual official record of how an event actually transpired. Um, or, you know, painting paintings to be given as gifts to other to other to to one another or to other things like that. Painting paintings to give to the Koreans, for example. That was the Kano painters for the most part. Um, and the shogunate also obviously had to hire people to supply them with, uh, you know, textiles and sake and ceramics and, and everything. So you have these Goyo uh, Shonin, who are sort of the official shogunate Artisans, I guess, to lack a better word, artisans. Um, and a lot of people today, you know, particularly in Kyoto, I guess Tokyo too, I don't know. A lot of people will definitely say, oh yeah, you know, my, my ancestors were, were Goyo uh, Shonin and, and my shop, you know, is sort of descended from that. So um, yeah, so that, that, that definitely existed. And um, the other thing is that certain arts, particularly like literati style ink painting, um, ink painting, calligraphy, uh, certain pursuits were, were very much embraced, uh, poetry is the one thing, poetry in particular, were very much embraced by the samurai class, by the shogunate as sort of being elite pursuits, and the shogun, the samurai being essentially warriors throughout the Edo period. These warriors who no longer have wars to fight are now trying to transform themselves into being a kind of refined, cultured elite class. So, in that respect, um, you know, certain arts, certain pursuits were very, very highly valued and, um, you know, a lot of things. But, uh, you know, Edo is really sort of the the golden age of Japanese popular culture, um, of the, the sort of the emergence of the commoner class, the merchant class. And so a lot of that stuff was not properly valued in the sense of uh, ukiyo-e artists, people, you know, the ukiyo-e artists and... Um, book publishers, most book publishers, kabuki actors were definitely, uh, you know, these were not elite cultures, elite cultural elements at all.
1: Yeah, my impression has been that they, that it sort of in the modern era, it's, they've sort of been, you know, people look back on it as like, wow, look at the, what they were doing, but at the time, they really weren't valued all that much.
0: Right, absolutely, absolutely.
1: As far as, the you know, the, the cast system... Was there any utility to that at all? Or was it simply in name only they decided to codify this person as above this person? Basically something they put together to make the samurai feel like they had some kind of value? Or was there some utility to actually putting people in this hierarchy?
0: The, the impression that I get, and this is really something that I need to you know look into more. It's a really I don't really know, but the, the impression that I get is that we need to kind of understand it less as a matter of like people being labeled. You know, you're of this class and you'll always be of this class or something like that. And more um, from, from the point of view of like political rhetoric or social rhetoric, just to, to understand that there was kind of this, this basic general concept of focusing on money, focusing on profit, being a merchant is, is not good. We shouldn't be focusing on that. That's not a good thing to be focusing on. And therefore, merchants are bad. You know, and uh, and we must we must always value you know the farmers because they're they're the ones who who you know make all the food for everybody. So it's sort of this I, I think more more in terms of rhetoric in terms of who we who we value and who we don't value or something in in general in society um, more so than any kind of strict understanding that there were like different classes that you could be born into. Obviously, there were still samurai and not samurai, um, and there was. Uh, you know, and they, the emperor and, and the court, the imperial court, still existed. They had very, very little power in the Edo period. And, and in point of fact, the emperor didn't even leave the palace for most of the Edo period.
1: Oh, that's, yeah, that's, the, that's true.
0: Yeah, I don't remember the years exactly, but from some, somewhere towards the mid or late 17th century, all the way through like the 1830s or 1840s, or maybe 1850s, the emperor never left the palace, let alone, you know, leaving Kyoto. So anyway, but those people still existed. So there definitely were different classes, you know, but in terms of, uh, and, and again, certainly the samurai versus not samurai thing was definitely a thing. You know, obviously people, samurai were allowed to carry swords. Commoners, for the most part, were not. And there were all kinds of things like that. But I think in terms of artisans and merchants and even farmers sort of believing that they were inherently like a, a, a different class, a different type of person, in some kind of really strict sense um, was not really um, so much of a, a thing. And I don't think there were that many... Now, I'm not sure there are any laws that sort of applied, like, you know, if you're of the merchant class, then you have to do this. But if you're of the artisan class, then you don't have to. Um, or See, actually, like that that. Was,
1: that's what I was also going to kind of ask about, too, is, uh, you know, you always hear about, well, samurai couldn't work or samurai couldn't do this and you couldn't yeah. switch being classes. But in, in, a, in, you know, the pre-modern era where you know it's hard to keep track of anyone right whatsoever how who's to stop someone from just pretending they're another class or just shifting between classes at will i mean it it, for all all the talk about uh you know that you get from the history books of uh well these classes were permanent and hideyoshi made them permanent well but what was the reality though i mean it really seems like all you have to do is go you know 150 miles from where you uh, were, were a samurai you just could suddenly become right. someone else you know change your name and just totally become someone else so
0: yeah yeah absolutely I don't I can't think of any examples offhand about sort of explicitly pretending to be somebody else in that respect and in point of fact um, I feel like I there must
1: be a kabuki play that handles that though
0: oh yeah tons tons uh, and in point of fact actually um, family genealogies were really, really important in the Edo period. So if you actually were samurai, then, you know, your your genealogy, your ancestry, you know, was written down kind of like the, I am not know what they're called today, the family registers that they have today in Japan. Uh,
1: oh, the, the koseki tohong and that kind of thing.
0: Thank you, the koseki, right? So among the samurai, that was actually a very important thing, and so I'm not sure about pretending to be samurai or something, but, um, but there were definitely plenty of, of cases of particularly later in the Edo period when the samurai you know, began to get poorer, there were certainly cases of samurai who who either um, kept their samurai name and were just you know, sort of poor samurai who had to farm on the side or something like that, um, or I guess there were probably people who kind of fell out of being samurai and just became peasants. I mean, and there were also people, as I said, Chonian townspeople, merchants, artisans, who were so, in some way or another I'm not quite sure who they were paying, I don't know how this happened, but people who were able to buy their way into, um, well, actually, you could probably pay a samurai to officially adopt you as his son, and then you'd become samurai. So that existed. But um, but anyway, but there were plenty of people, uh, I don't know about sheer numbers, but there are examples that I could give of individuals who retained their samurai status, who were known to be samurai, who you know, put themselves forward as samurai. And we're still ukiyo-e painters, you know. And went out and painted stuff and sold it on commission to make money. So Hiroshige, who's one of the most famous ukiyo-e painters, uh, d- print designers, Hiroshige, who did uh, the Fifty Three Stations of the Tokaido
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, like that, um, was a samurai. His father was in the uh, Edo firefighting department or whatever we want to call it. His surname was Ando. So he he had a surname, um, and he so he was absolutely samurai. There's a guy named Chobunsai Ishi, who um, most art historians will definitely have heard of. But um, if you haven't, I don't blame you. Uh, Chobunsai Ishi, uh, which was a studio name. That's not his samurai family name. But he he was also samurai. Um, so there was definitely, and also there were plenty of samurai who you know attended the theater, attended the the kabuki theater, or went to the Yoshiwara, even though they weren't supposed to, and. They they weren't like masquerading as somebody else with a different name or anything like that, um, but they would they weren't officially supposed to be there and they would you know hide their hide their head um, you know under a scarf and kind of do things secretly, so yeah you know, there was definitely lots of kind of crossing in that respect um, as well
1: yeah um, you know that actually makes me think of uh, uh, you know Luke Roberts now. Kind of how he talks about the uh, the, the naisho and the oh yes uh, the, the internal the external like uh, and uh, it's been a while since I read about it but you know I get the impression that the fact that the samurai were there covering their heads maybe even though everyone knew they were samurai they were accepted there because well they're they're pretending they're not here so we're just going to accept that they're not here even though they actually are and I, that I almost feel like that kind of right. is the sort of thing that uh, Luke Roberts was talking about when he was talking about the the crazy things like uh, the and I don't I'm sure you may remember this I don't remember it that well but I think he was mm-hmm. talking about a lord for a clan or someone had died and, oh, yes. and 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 someone came down from Edo and they did this and that but it turned but he pretended the guy was alive so that they could fulfill whatever you know uh, political right. obligation they had to do and but I kind of getting a I kind of get the feeling that, that there might be some kind of similarity to that
0: yeah I mean Luke Roberts gives this example of when, when a daimyo named his heir his official heir he had to do it before he was even ill um, and he had to do it you know when he was in proper mental uh, mental health and he had to name and in theory he had to name an heir who either was his actual sort of blood heir or who had been formally adopted you know prior and off everything had to be kind of in order but in, in point of fact, you know, that didn't happen, you know, at least half the time. Well, I shouldn't name numbers. That very often did not happen. Um, and so the shogunate would send a Metsuke, an inspector, to sort of oversee and make sure that everything was cool. But in point of fact, you know, sometimes the daimyo was not only ill, but was actually dead. It was not only dead, but was not even there at all. They didn't even put the, the, the body in the room where the Metsuke was supposedly you know, standing there to to check that the daimyo was in good health as he named his proper son to be his heir, and that's and that's sort of in a nutshell a, a nice example of this system of Nisho and, uh, and omote in which as long as things are observing uh, the proper rituals on the surface, as long as as long as everything kind of seems to be in order, it's okay if in point of fact it's actually not.
1: Um, right. If they can say the the Metsuke went, he did what he was supposed to do and he came back, regardless of the fact that, if, you know, that the guy was already dead, then that satisfies what needs to be satisfied.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so and, and I, I think you make a, a good point about trying to compare that to this, uh, to the case of the samurai. Um, I think that the samurai going into the Yoshiwara, for example, I think I mean, and I I, I I'm still kind of struggling with exactly uh, you know, how this plays out, exactly why this works, and what the logic is to it. So I'm a little bit unsure, but I think that part of it is sort of this idea that, um, you know, things happen, and the world is complicated, and things happen, and you can't, you can't legally enforce that everybody has to strictly observe so, you know, so perfectly, so strictly. Um, but what you can do is, as long as things are, as long as everyone is kind of playing their role, which is a very Confucian concept. As long as everybody is doing what they're supposed to do, um, if, the, if the ruler acts like a ruler, the subject acts like a subject, and the father acts like a father, and a son acts like a son, if everyone's doing what they're supposed to do, then everything will be in order, as long as you, you know sort of observe your, your um, position. So when it comes to samurai going to the Oshiwara or going to the Kabuki, it's kind of like we can't really stop them. Um, you know, people people want to do what they want to do and whatever. But as long as it doesn't cause trouble, as long as you don't stir up too much trouble, we can pretend that that it never happened.
1: As long as it's discreet, we'll just turn and look the other way, basically, I guess.
0: Exactly. And I I don't get a sense, just to be clear, I don't get a sense that the uh, tea houses, the the brothels themselves, or the the kabuki theaters themselves, were in any way supposed to be turning people away. It's more a question of whether the inspectors, the uh, policemen, are supposed to be watching out for a samurai being there um, so it's it's not that the brothel itself was sort of pretending that he's not a samurai and letting him in um, I don't think that that was on them to uh, enforce that role in any way
1: right right it's and we a...
0: and, you know, and we even have examples of Hatamoto and daimyo themselves you know being really really into kabuki or, or going to the Yoshiwara for example and I think I think the Shogun might have invited Kabuki performers to the castle on a number of occasions as well, which is kind of interesting if Kabuki is supposed to be so sort of popular level and, and you know, unrefined or whatever. But uh, but anyway,
1: but yeah. So I guess uh, in in the sort of the sum total then, the uh, cast system was... Mostly rhetoric, just sort of to to throw those Confucian principles out there, I suppose. And Mm -hmm. sort of the the concepts of samurai were not allowed to work uh, is probably not necessarily true. Uh, Right,
0: right. I think it's not entirely a matter of that they weren't allowed to work per se, but that it was, you know, in terms of any kind of legal thing. But it's more, I think, in terms of like a cultural thing, like a social thing, that it looks bad, that it's not... It's not, um, becoming, it's not becoming of a samurai to, to care about money.
1: Well, that probably makes more sense than to, saying we're going to arrest you if you work.
0: <laughs> right.
1: But it, it did happen. I'm sure they there were, uh, you know, when they, they had no other, no, no other option.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. Um, yeah, particularly again in in the case of those samurai who had to become farmers or something, and there were people who became artisans as well in order to uh, uh, in order to make money. So because because um, uh, uh, the samurai were paid stipends um, out of I I don't actually know the exact sort of process of it, but I guess basically each domain had you know had its agricultural production, and the peasants had to pay taxes to the daimyo. So now the daimyo has a certain amount of rice, a certain amount of uh, yeah rice that um, you know that he's been paid in taxes that he now has to pay out to his retainers, and they have to pay that to their retainers, Um, and that's basically the income that a samurai had was that amount of rice that his lord gave him. So if you weren't going to work, then that's that's it. That's the amount of money that you had, Um, and over the course of the Edo period. There, I don't uh, there were all kinds of fluctuations in price and the rice became less and less valuable and so the same amount of rice that you were getting paid as your, as your strict stipend because um, the stipends didn't really change that much in the, in the um, so you know as rice became less and less valuable became uh, in, it, there was inflation basically um, you know a, sti- a person's stipend would itself become less and less valuable um, and so by the 19th century we start to see samurai, Having some pretty serious uh, economic uh, financial problems, you know, on a sort of personal, individual level, as well as on a domain level, I guess.
1: Yeah, and then you get movies like, uh, the end result being uh, movies like Harakiri, Death of a Samurai, with the the, the poor, uh, indigent samurai. Mm.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I wasn't the main character in Twilight Samurai was also one of those types, wasn't he?
1: Uh, I believe so, yeah. I
0: don't remember. So, um, which reminds me of, uh, I mean, we should have said this earlier, but when I was first describing the domains, um, y- you know, the, the, the shogunate, um, uh, sorry, the shogunate res- reserved the right to take people's domains away from them. Um, in, in theory, all of the land belonged to the shogunate and was being sort of, uh, you know, leased, for lack of a better word, I guess, you know, the, the, the daimyo were, were controlling this land sort of at the whim of the shogun. Right, um, And so, particularly early in the Edo period, um, I mean, it happened throughout the period, but I think less so later on, but particularly very early in the period, um, in the first 50 years or so, let's say, up until 1650 or so, there were tons of cases of daimyo um, being forced to move to a different domain um, because... Um, most often, it, I mean, in terms of something politically that they had showed that they had done, that they had, you know, sort of opposed the shogunate or something, I guess. Um, but also in terms of Luke Roberts talks about succession issues, and if you failed to name an heir and you didn't have an heir, you lost your you lost your your domain. Um, so you know, and a lot of times, sometimes domains were split up so that among different heirs, or sometimes domains were split up so that the shogunate. Had land to give to somebody that they wanted to give land to, so some of the most powerful tozama daimyo did get to keep the lands that they ancestrally had, you know, at the end of the sengoku at the at the, at the end of the sengoku period, where even you know, in some cases like Satsuma got to keep the land that they supposedly had Satsuma since like the Heian period. Right. Um, but other people were not so fortunate, um, and you have people like the Uesugi who. Please correct me for a moment, I believe the Uesugi are originally from the Kanto, or at least they, they were very influential in the Kanto in certain parts of the Sengoku period. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what they controlled at the end of the Sengoku period, which parts of the Kanto or whatever. But um, in the Edo period, the Uesugi were then moved to Yonezawa um, up in uh, in Tohoku, so they had to control Yonezawa, and they were not, you know, and yeah, were not controlling land in the, in the Kanto anymore. Um, And there were a lot of examples of that as well. So, um, you know, some domains... I mean, I looked at... uh, Was it Hikone domain, I think? Anyway, I can't seem to find the example that I was looking for, but there were definitely some domains that, um, over the course of the Edo period, you know, went through many different clans as the Shogunate, for one reason or another, uh, you know, took it... took that domain, you know, from one clan and gave it to another one. Right. So, I mean, just... Uh, Izu domain, for example, which plays a big role um, in the Bakumatsu period. Aizu domain was controlled by the Hoshina and Matsudaira clan, which was one one family, Hoshina and Matsudaira family, um, from 1643 onwards. but prior to that, you know over the, the first 43 years of the Edo period went through like three or four different clans. Um, and Himeji, which today is the largest and most famous you know castle remaining in Japan. Um, I don't have the years here, unfortunately, but um, over the course of the period, they went through, like, seven or eight different clans, from the Ikeda to the Honda to the Okudaira, and then the Echizen, and then the the Honda again, uh, and then finally ending up with the Sakai clan for the majority of the Edo period. So, anyway, um, I just wanted to throw that in there as well, that there was some sort of shifting around, you know, as well, that, that happened in terms of the political landscape there. And um, and the the di- the showmate also did sometimes, you know the, 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 the Kokudaka and I don't want to get we, we could do an entire podcast about just Kokudaka and I, I think we could, we should, when um, Nate wants to.
1: Yeah, I was <laughs> gonna say Nate's our or our uh Kokudaka Kandaka guy, so <laughs>
0: Yeah. But um, but for the most part the, the the amount that each domain was um was 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 assessed at as their koku, their kokudaka, their their amount of wealth, their amount of strength, was not really reassessed over the course of the period, over the course of the Edo period. So the only way it changed, uh, usually, was when the shogunate either raised or lowered um, a domain's kokudaka for political reasons. So you know there were times. I think Saga Domain, I want to say, was one of the domains that had its kokudaka doubled actually at one point after they successfully helped repel a um oh well, actually you no know who it was it wasn't Saga, sorry. One of the domains in the far north, I think it might have been Sugaru. Um, I should look this up before I keep talking
1: wouldn't uh, doubling of a domain's Kokudaka or value be a almost like a penalty because they would therefore have to pay a larger percentage in tax? Yes,
0: yes, that's true. Um, yeah, and, and Luke Roberts talks about that. And have you read the book, by the way?
1: Which book are we talking about?
0: Uh, Luke Roberts' newest book, *Performing the Great Peace*.
1: Uh, no, I, I guess I I read something oh, okay. because just, I I read something true. that he did, but
0: anyway, I was just going to say as a, yeah, but he definitely talks about that that there were some some times that um, um that that a domain's uh, agricultural production had actually increased dramatically. Most most domains actually increased their agricultural production over the course of the Edo period, but uh, they didn't want to tell the shogunate because then they would have to pay more taxes. So that's, that's definitely true. That's a very good point. But anyway, I was just going to cite the example of Morioka-han, Morioka domain in uh, Tohoku somewhere, which was originally assessed at 100,000 koku. And after 1808, um, there was some kind of Incident with the Russians, I think maybe, or uh,
1: that sounds about the right time, so it makes sense.
0: Yeah, something like that. And um, Morioka's uh, official Kokodaka was double to two hundred thousand. So, and I think part of part of the thing here, you're absolutely right to say that um, you know domains don't want to pay more taxes. Right. But but at the same time, having above a certain threshold of Koku. We meant that that daimyo a was it was well, meant that meant that, that daimyo was eligible for certain um, uh, 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 privileges within the shogunate within the shogunate court. So uh, you know, making him eligible for certain positions uh, and posts, making him eligible for being for being able to sit in on certain uh, meetings, things like that.
1: Okay, so, so that's that's interesting. I get this, yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, so I mean, I was actually just reading about. The Ryukyuan embassies when they visited Edo, and for I'm still I'm still very much at the beginning of this research, so I'm still not entirely clear how it all went. But but when the Ryukyuan embassies visited Edo, they usually went usually had an audience with the audience with the shogun two or three times, and I'm not sure if it all three times, but I think pretty much every time they went, all the daimyo that were happening to be in Edo at the time who had over 100,000 koku were seated in the the ohiroma oh the the um, the great audience hall. So, what exactly that means for that daimyo, like why he wants to be there? I'm not entirely positive. What exactly that gets him?
1: Just prestige, anyway, I, I I would assume.
0: But anyway, prestige and things like that. So, um, in terms of you know having a higher level of koku, uh, koku absolutely. I think that that's you know in terms of prestige that that's yeah. Um, And the shogunate continued to hand out court titles, you know, like uh, uh, higher, lower, fourth rank or whatever it was, um, as well as, you know, uh, all these terms like um, being captain of the left guard and things like that, imitating the same titles that the imperial court gave out. Um, And so that also played into this uh, uh, as well. You know, if you had a higher Koku, then you were eligible for higher court rank or something like this. And it's all about prestige and right.
1: I think for the listeners, if possible, we should kind of give an idea of the big picture political hierarchy. And this is my impression based on what I've read in our previous podcasts. And then definitely jump in and correct me where I'm wrong. But I yeah. get the impression <laughs> that uh, you have at the daimyo level, the daimyo is responsible for everyone under him. And the, the uh, bakafu doesn't necessarily have control over the people under him. That That's the responsibility of the daimyo to keep his people in line. Right. And... And I, you know, we've talked about it before, where it's almost like a confederation, where the daimyo has control of his area, but he in get, pays lip service to the bakufu. Um, is that necessarily the case, or is that what, what, what exactly is the situation with that? Um,
0: I think, yeah. I mean, putting aside the, the machi bugyo and you know these kind of slightly separate situations, if we want if we want to talk about just the daimyo domains.
1: Well, actually, I would um, I would put that in there as well because I know, like okay. for example, the uh, Nagasaki bugyo was appointed by the shogunate, if I remember correctly.
0: Right, right.
1: And but so I, they're they're sort of separate from they're like a representative of the shogunate, operating right. within the daimyo's domain.
0: Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean the, the, these big cities like Edo and Kyoto and Osaka that had that were administered by a machi bugyo were not within a daimyo's domain. Um, they were. They were sort of like a
1: Washington D.C. type concept, I guess.
0: Exactly, exactly. So they they had a separate kind of situation. But um uh, but overall, I think you're absolutely right to say that basically it's it's like nesting dolls or something like that, where, you know, the the daimyo is responsible, as you said, the daimyo is responsible for his retainers and for whatever goes on within his his domain. And Luke Roberts points out that uh, at times the domain is called a house, quote unquote house and e a um, or, or, or the, the character Watashi, mean, meaning like uh, private or personal, is used to refer to daimyo matters. So um, the daimyo was responsible for what went on within his domain and as you say the shogunate was not really sort of directly dealing with the daimyo's retainers. So the daimyo had his retainers, the retainers had their retainers, the retainers had, you know, whatever, and it kind of goes down like that um, and it just gets smaller and smaller. You have uh, village headmen who are responsible for, you know, let's say, five villages, and then each of those five villages is, has one headman responsible for everybody within that village, and so it's kind of nesting dolls in this way. If the village, the village has to maintain its own affairs, um, and they're respond, you know, it's kind of they're kind of left alone to maintain their own affairs, so long as they pay their taxes properly or whatever, um, and then you know. Each five villages or whatever it is, is responsible for making sure that that the villages within them manage their affairs and uh, and like that. So it just kind of goes up from there. And then above the daimyo, you have the shogun who, again, sort of, uh, yeah, the shogun has his retainers that he's responsible for, but he's not necessarily sort of directly responsible for the retainers' retainers.
1: And, you know, on the same uh, sort of on this particular topic, my understanding is, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, Mm. the effectiveness of peasant uprisings came directly from the fact that uh, if the Shogun felt that the daimyo wasn't able to, you know, keep control of the people under him, then he'd get into trouble. So uh, every now and then the the daimyo would have to sort of collapse to the uh, will of the people, I guess you could say. I don't yes. know. I, I don't have any specific examples, but I, I kind of get the impression that if there's a peasant uprising because they're unhappy about something, uh, that that's sort of their power. Their, their power over the daimyo is to cause problems in the domain that would attract the attention of the bakufu.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I can't think of the sort of precise details of it offhand, but um, once again, Luke Roberts' book, uh, Performing the Great Peace, actually cites some examples of these. These uh, peasant uprisings and sort of how they were resolved. And in point of fact, um, I mean, not only sort of uprising in terms of just like causing chaos and protesting or whatever, but peasants actually also had the power to, you know, bring lawsuits, sort of. And for the most part, they could only sue, like, you know, you, you, you could bring a suit to the daimyo. Or you could bring a suit to your local region or something like that, and it was levels. It was levels and layers, you know. And you weren't allowed to go above whatever your immediate superior, your immediate level that you were supposed to be complaining to. If you complained to the daimyo rather than complaining to your local regional, uh, I don't know whatever it is sub-retainer, um, then you, you you could just be killed entirely. You could be, you know. But um, but yeah, but there were definitely times when peasants, peasants or commoners, were for one reason or another, somehow or other, permitted to actually bring their court to the shogunate to sort of essentially sue their, uh, uh, you know, to, to to jump levels and go beyond the, their their own daimyo and sort of go straight to the shogunate court and say, look, you know, the daimyo is not not managing his own affairs, and that that brings a lot of trouble to the daimyo um, because of the way that this is all structured. Yeah. Right. So. But suffice to say that, I mean, this sort of situation that we described at the beginning of this podcast in terms of the way the domains are structured and the relationship with the Shogunate, um, the sankin Kotai element, the, the sort of maritime restrictions, all of this, these kind of basic understanding of, of the fundaments of, of how the country was structured politically um, remained in place from roughly 1630-something until 1850-something. <laughs> um, so for the for the whole Edo, for the majority of the Edo period for about 200 years this is the situation and I hope that we've provided um, a good overview and not uh, gone too much into too many uh, uh, weird side tracks.
1: Right, and uh, we'll also do some more podcasts on the Edo period, other aspects of it, since it, it is sort of a, a big chunk of uh, what's right. studied about Japan. So we'll right. definitely get into that too.
0: So I'm looking forward to talking about uh, economics and also, obviously, culture, because I do culture stuff.
1: Yeah, we'll have to draft Naden for the uh, economics portion. Yeah, yeah, maybe. All right. So I guess that uh, that that's uh, that's a wrap for this particular chunk of the Edo period then.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in terms of, I guess, since we've talked about how it all started, in terms of how it all fell apart, maybe at some point we'll do a bakumatsu kind of overview. We can talk about it at that point. Why, why and how it, it
1: all fell apart. Sounds like a plan.
0: Cool.
1: And that's it for our podcast on the politics of the Edo period. Please feel free to send us questions to our Facebook page or on Twitter at Samurai Archives or to SamuraiPodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, don't forget to check out what we have available at the Samurai Archives store and on the bookstore powered by Amazon.com. Also, if you shop on Amazon.com, please click through our link on the podcast page at SamuraiPodcast.com. doesn't cost you a penny, but it kicks us back a little bit to keep the whole thing up and running. Thanks, and see you next time.